Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 41 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is San Francisco Bay Area yoga teacher, Deborah Berkman. Deb has been teaching yoga for almost 20 years. She taught at Yoga Journal. She taught for seven years at Twitter, and she's taught at studios around the Bay Area. And when I asked her to be on the podcast and we started talking about topics, she said something that really stood out to me. She said that she's happy not being a super famous yoga teacher and that she doesn't spend a ton of time on social media. (gasps) Amazing. That amazed me to hear someone who's been teaching for 17 years say that. And it just sounded so wonderfully liberating to me. So I knew that's what I wanted her to talk about. And the heart of the matter here that, that Deb gets to is figuring out what your purpose is and embracing the idea that who you are and what you're doing is enough. And that's not to say that you won't doubt yourself. That's not to say that you shouldn't push yourself to be wildly successful in whatever way you dream of. You know, gosh, the the web is all about like following your bliss and your passion and your dreams. And that's great. But it's also okay to be an everyday career yoga teacher in this age of Insta celebrity where everyone is after their 15 minutes of fame. You don't have to get sucked in. And that's really what this interview is about. When I started the podcast, I started it in part because I want yoga to continue on. I don't want it to be a huge fad that just implodes. I always think of that song from the 70s. If you're not into yoga, if you have half a brain, and I don't want that to happen to this practice. I don't want us to look back and be like, oh God, that trendy, weird you know, fad that when we all did yoga, I think it's a really long lasting, vital practice that can help us just be happier and be more skillful in our lives. So in order for yoga to keep going, we have to have great teachers all over the place in the big cities and in the small towns, and you all need to feel supported. So that's my goal in general with the podcast And that's my goal specifically with this episode. So I hope you enjoy it. All right, my dear. So the last time you and I talked, you said something that I think is really important for people to hear, which is you are happy not being a quote unquote, super famous yoga teacher. And you have figured out how to build a career for yourself without spending a ton of time and effort on social media. And you've been teaching for about 20 years now. Almost, almost been 17. Yeah, that's amazing. So I would love to, you know, start talking about your path, you know, up to now in terms of your teaching. And I think I would love to talk about kind of the psychology behind the idea of, you know, not being a super famous teacher and then also just some of the logistics too. So when you and I started you teaching and me practicing, there wasn't social media, right? So that was in some ways helpful if that's not the path you want to take. But, you know, how did you start teaching? Did you jump in feet first and become a full-time teacher? Or did you start it as a part-time gig while you had another job? How did you actually start? So I started, I did not start full-time. In fact, I was very hesitant to even be a teacher at first. It was something that was very serendipitous. The head of the mindful body at the time asked me to sub some classes, basically I mean, it's a longer story, but that's basically how I got started. And I loved yoga at the time, but I was, I hadn't even been practicing that long. So I definitely had other jobs. I was at that period of time, both juggling a career in acting. I was doing a lot of actually educational theater, and I was also working in psychology. So I was working part-time at Edgewood Children's Center. There was another, um, I worked with adults who were in outpatient situations. There was lots of different things I was piecing together. And I was working part-time at the Mindful Body at the desk to get free yoga. And that's where there was actually an emergency. And somebody asked me to teach the class. They're like, Deb can teach it, you know? And I was like, uh, and this was, you know, 
still there was, you know, four yoga studios in the city and nobody was certified. And so I led the class. And then from there, there was, you know, Josh asked me, Joshua Feinblum was the head of the yoga program there at the time, asked me to teach some morning classes. Yeah. So that's sort of how it started. But I was definitely still piecing things together and just kind of figuring out how I liked it. Josh was training me at the time. And so I was just sort of finding my way in that first couple of years. I didn't even do a teacher training until two years into teaching. Mm-hmm. That, it's funny. That's Sarah Powers told us that when I did my teacher training with her, she said I didn't, she started teaching. I can't remember how she fell into it, but she didn't do a, a specific training either, which is so funny because, you know, I mean, now you have to have a minimum of 200 hours. And we always say to people like 200 hours is nothing. You have to have more than that. But there is, there was this time when it was just like this open landscape. Yeah. Finding for sure, for sure. Finding your way. And it took me a long time before I really, really committed. It wasn't until I started teaching in 2000. And then it really wasn't until, I guess it was 2002, 2003, when I realized this was going to be my career and I was really going to do this as, uh, yeah, as what I wanted to really pursue very seriously. And what do you think it was that changed things from you from it being a part-time part of, you know, a series of things that you were doing? How did you know that you could make the switch and how scary was it or how ready were you? What were the signs for you? Yeah, I definitely, I remember the day actually I decided that this was something that I really wanted to pursue very seriously. And that was, you know, it's funny, even going to India, I went to India in 2002 to study with uh, Shri K. Patabi Joyce in Mysore. And even being there when I came back, I thought that was going to be like the answer. Like, is this something I wanted to go to the fountainhead, you know, where yoga was created and see if that, you know, helped me figure out like, yes, this is really what I want to do or not. Even when I came back, I was like, oh, I'm still confused. I don't know. And then it was, it was after I led my first retreat. I led a weekend retreat at a place called Wildwood Center in Guerneville. And I remember after that retreat, just being super clear, like this is okay. There's something to this. I've always been super interested in psychology Mm -hmm. and always since I was a kid in helping people. And I realized when I was there, there was something about the combination of, it felt kind of like camp. And I also, I'm a kid who went to camp and loved camp. I loved the summers that I spent at camp. And there was something about being in nature, the healthy food, all of the, the connections I was making with my students, being able to teach the yoga sutras, being able to teach the anatomy, being able to also teach the asana, having all of those things together for an intensive period of time. And then watching people really feel better in in such a short period of time or feel like they were gaining tools. And it was just fun. Also, it was fun. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, I had been working in the past with a lot of people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was like, oh, this isn't that different. I'm just working with really, really high functioning folks. and this is a a way, this is a tool for me to use my psychology and a tool for me to do so many things that I enjoy, so many things together that I enjoy from community to nature. So that was really the turning point. And I felt like it was something that was mine that I, that I had created this retreat. So I was super jazzed and I just was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing this. This is something I want to follow. That's a really good point that you made that I mean, you didn't say it in these words, but that most of us have suffered some trauma at some point or another. And, you know, for people who really do have a PTSD diagnosis, I mean, I don't mean to diminish that. That's a certain set of, you know, symptoms and things that happen. But regardless, yeah, I mean, yoga can help even the seemingly most high functioning people like deal with things that may have hurt them in the past in a, in a really concrete way. Sure. I mean, the whole premise, Andrea, right, is that of yoga is that we suffer. Yeah. Right. We, we suffer. That's the, the description of reality is that we, if, if the mind doesn't, if the mind is unchecked, we don't work with the mind to get it skillful. It can be our worst enemy. Mm -hmm. And I think all of us deal and 
regardless, we're all going to have hardships. We're all going to lose people at some point in life. We're all going to have sickness. We're all going to have all of us. There's no one that gets away in this life with no obstacles, with no struggle. So you don't have to be diagnosed to get more skillful with dealing with hardships that come our way or looking at our mind in ways in which we trip ourselves up. I think sometimes, yeah, sure, in our culture, like diagnosis or or therapy can be looked at as something somehow we have something wrong with us. I don't think about it that way at all. I'm so pro-therapy. I think yoga is a kind of therapy. And again, someone that is has a very strong good mind can always find ways of refinement. So I think that's what I mean by this was a way. And, and you know, one of the ways I came to yoga also were, were ways in which I was suffering. I was drawn to it because it made me feel better. It gave me certain Physically, it made me feel better at first. And then mentally and emotionally, I started feeling better and started understanding myself better. So there's that was, I think, really the impetus to teach was I was getting something from this practice. And so wanting to share that, wanting to give that. And, you know, that brings me back a little bit to your original question about, you know, this idea of being famous, right, in the, in the yoga world. And I think even when you and I started practicing and participating in the yoga community in this tradition, I don't know, you know, how I, I may not be remembering this quite, quite that well, but I don't remember there being any famous yogis, like in the way that there are now. I think it was honestly just Rodney. Like, I just remember seeing Rodney's picture at Walgreens, that kind of thing, you know, or DVDs. That's right. But that would be it, DVDs. Yeah, Gaiam. Gaiam had sort of thrust him as the poster boy, if you will. The exotic um, yoga teacher. Yes, you know. this, uh, yes, exactly. And who was very skilled. I went and, you know, took, I know Jason took his training and he is still a, an excellent yeah. teacher. But yeah, he, yeah. And I don't think even at that time I I really knew much about him. But it's, it's a new, not new, but when we first started, it wasn't there. And I think for me, it sort of was something that came after. I already had the impulse to teach. I had the impulse to teach for the reasons that we just talked about, the impulse to want to help, to share some of the things that I got from yoga. There were certain things I felt capable of teaching from who knows why, from certain skills that I had. So it was a good fit for me. and. So then this other thing started happening where, oh, you know, there's people getting famous from this. And, you know, there, there's some professions that are like that. I mean, certainly movies, if you're going into, some people go into acting for very different reasons of becoming famous. And some people go into that industry to become famous. And I think for me, it was never to become famous and in fact, I think when I think about that kind of thing, I think about actually chapter three of the Yoga Sutras, because I think what chapter three is sort of like, okay, there's all these things possible that can happen when you get into a yogic state, when you have deep connections or you're, you're very uh, attentive to something over a period of time. Certain things can happen. In chapter three, he sort of lists all these different things. And a lot of them are very seductive, right? You know, you can... It depends how you interpret chapter three, but you know, you potentially can become invisible. You can fly. The cities, like the miracles. These miracles. And there's, and I have some different interpretations. It's a little bit more metaphoric to me than literal, these things that you can do. But it's not the ultimate goal. Patanjali is very clear that the goal, it's almost thought of sometimes as a test chapter. Like, are you going to, on your way to the mountaintop to see the larger view? Are you going to get, you know, diverted by the stream and the the big party that's happening over, you know, to the right, and you're going to stay there? Or are you going to remember why you're really doing this? And I think the famous stuff can be very seductive, very seductive. Like, oh, we can have what's called a smita, right? One of the clashes we identify my worth is how many people know me, then I'm good, then I'm a good yoga teacher. But the the truth is, I think that causes more suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that our worth has nothing to do with how famous we are. And if that happens, I mean, look, I don't think it's a bad thing if that is a result and you end up being very well known 
or even famous. I don't think you have to push it away, but I think it creates a whole other host of challenges that you have to then deal with. And that if it's your goal, number one, you should be clear on that. If it's just being seductively your goal, it gets you get confused and lost. You want to keep coming back to why are you really doing this? I don't know if it's the right career for you if your goal is to be famous because this tradition is about helping others and your students should be the focus, not you. Mm -hmm. I think the famous thing is really tricky in this industry. You know, I don't know a lot of other industries that are like this, where you're, you're trying to be seen so much. And, um, I, I think there's a lot of aspects of it again, that, that, that are unfortunate in a certain way that especially for younger teachers can be very seductive. And I'm not immune to it either. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, was there ever a time where you sort of, you were doing your thing, you were teaching, you were building up your base and getting comfortable with, like you said, living this purpose that you kind of discovered for yourself. Was there ever a time where you looked around and thought, oh crap, like I, I should be joining this game here. Like there's this conference circuit or there's this whatever it was. I mean, I think sort of the conference circuit is the, was the first thing that created this possibility for quote unquote fame. And, you know, Jason, and I actually have, a, I think it's like the third podcast. We talked about this whole topic and this idea of yoga teachers being a celebrity and how absurd he feels it is. He's like, I don't get on an airplane and get escorted to first class. I'm not Kanye, you know, (laughs) it doesn't really afford you that many perks. It is still a job, right? Yeah. But I do think like the conference circuit was the first thing that just put people in a public arena more, right? So you would, you would perceive that they were quote unquote famous. Anyway, I'm just wondering like, if that, if that ever became a pain point for you and then how you dealt with it, how you got to know yourself better to deal with it. You know, I think there's, there's definite, I mean, absolutely. I wanted to teach at yoga journal. I wanted to be on that circuit. A lot of my friends at the time, you know, Deesha and I started teaching around the same time, Cassandra Fox around the same time. There was a bunch of different teachers that were teaching at yoga journal. And I was like, I want to too. And I think there were definitely moments where it's like, why are there, you know, why is Stephanie Snyder's class bigger than mine? What's wrong with me? Sure. All of those things I definitely dealt with. And I think there's some real benefit to, you know, to teaching at Yoga Journal gives certain credibility to people who don't know you. It widens your base. Your business can, can grow that way for sure. And it can be positive. So these things are a little complicated and it's not black or white in terms of, you know, like, oh, yoga journal, teaching a yoga journal, bad. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. Or I don't feel that way. So yes, I did have that desire for sure. And I think I had to keep coming back when certain things maybe didn't happen or um, I've never had 50 people in a class. I've never been a Rusty Wells, right? I've never had. So when I'd have those feelings, I had to investigate them. And right, what, what a great vehicle to investigate it as yoga, because yoga is self-awareness and, mm-hmm. and, and thinking about the thoughts and beliefs we have that come into our mind. So if I had a thought that was, you know, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not a good teacher because I don't have 50 people in my class, I'd have to evaluate that and come back again to wait, why am I really doing this? Do What's enough? Mm. What's enough? Like, well, wait, I'm actually making a living. Okay. Doing what I love. and who's the sayer of who's a good teacher and not a good teacher? Some of this is so random, right place, right time, who gets in with who, schmoozing, how much you're on Instagram, you know, and some of it, you can be on Instagram as much as you want and you're still not gonna, you know, it's like the movie industry. My brother's in the movie industry and there are so many independent movies that are amazing pieces of art. Mm Mm-hmm. They're not well known. Mm. They're better than Santa Claus three meets. I don't know. You know, I'm totally. It's so true. <laughs> How are you evaluating yourself? And it doesn't mean don't, you know, there's a great yoga sutra. Sorry, I got to keep pulling out the yoga sutras. But, you know, on chapter two, two, one, he says, tapas, svadhyaya, Ishvari Paridana Kriya Yoga. This is the three qualities you need to be in a yogic action. You need effort. You need to, it's like 
endurance or the elbow grease of life. You need to work hard at whatever goal you want, right? The big goal in yoga is connection to self. So self meaning higher self, however you want to think about your mature self, your authentic self. So, but this can be any goal. You have to, I want to be a yoga teacher. All right. So they got to work at it. You have to do the work. You also have to be self-aware. What are you working at? Are you working all the time at Instagram and not on your anatomy and your philosophy and your asana? Mm. Or what, what are you working? And what is your work? What work? Are you shy? Do you need to work on public speaking? Do you, are you uh, loquacious and you need to work on maybe pulling back, work hard to pull back to give your students more space? So self-awareness. And then Ishvari Paridana, my all-time favorite, mm-hmm. right, is surrendering to that which is not up to you, that's a bigger than you, right? And this means don't identify with the results of your efforts. It isn't really totally up to you. How big your class is. There's so many factors that are not up to you. Timing, what studio you're teaching at, what students are wanting in that moment, how tired students are. And if you start getting into, it doesn't mean don't evaluate. You know, you should think, well, is there, is there something I could be doing to make a better connection with my students? And maybe some more marketing is needed and more training is needed, et cetera. You should evaluate, but it's a slippery slope. You have to also be careful. It's like in my, I study with Kate Holcomb. And one of the things she always says is she calls him Uncle Patanjali, right? Because he's a really great uncle. He doesn't let you off the hook. You do the work. But you're also kind to yourself. And remember, I in the meditations I do for myself, I'm always like, not up to me. Not up to me. <laughs> not up to me. So much is not up to us. Right. So you, if you start identifying, I really think Ishvari Paridana means don't identify with the results of your effort. You are not your class size. Your worth has nothing to do whether you teach at Yoga Journal or not. So I think there's that kind of balance between doing the work we need to do and keep coming back to why did you do this to begin with? Yeah, your purpose. So I I think that's so important. And I think that in part, you know, I I see this like dual, you know, cost benefit to the internet and, and yoga, right? I think the benefit is just creating more community. Chrissy Carter is a teacher in New York. And I swear the two of us became friends on Twitter first. And now she's like a good friend of mine, you know, and I have so much respect for her and, and I really, really love her. So I do think that that is one of the upsides. But like you said, the downside is just the distractive element. And we all have an ego. So this is not a criticism of anyone in in particular, but it's it's something that does feed our ego. And that feeding the ego, that seducing the ego, you know, that doesn't lead to contentment, right? That's, it's what you said earlier. It's, it's what kind of creates more suffering. So one question that comes to mind for me is like, a lot of teachers will, since I started the podcast, have said that they're happy to have the podcast because being a teacher can be lonely, actually you know, you don't want to depend on every kernel of your students' feedback for your happiness. You don't want to depend on your class size for your happiness. You don't want to depend on all these things. So, you know, did you ever feel that sense of like, oh man, I'm really going this alone. And like, h- how did you, how have you handled that? That's an interesting question. I felt lonely. I mean, I have had moments definitely where I'm like, I think it would be cool to have a job where there's more collaboration, uh-huh. you know, because I, I am a believer in what is it gestalt where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, or I'm probably saying that wrong. Yeah, but no, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think that there's something to that for sure. And, and that it, it can be really rewarding to work with others. But, and, you know, I don't know, I don't know, Andrea, actually, that I have had that experience of really feeling lonely. I think in part, Maybe because I do make sure, like, I, I go to a class every week uh, with Kate Holcomb, a Yoga Sutra class. There's these unbelievable women that are in there that I talk to every week. Um, I, I do these yoga retreats quite regularly where I do get, I mean, my students are unbelievable. They're unbelievable. And it's like, sometimes I pinch myself on these retreats because I'm going to these unbelievably beautiful places 
with kick-ass people that are getting to know it's like adult camp. I get to be social and then I get to teach what I love. And so there's also a way in which, I mean, I, and then I also have to deal with those ending and reacclimating into what I call the real world, you know, and taking whatever I learned from that retreat and integrating it. But there's all those ways. And then I have, you know, I have my friends. So I, I don't know. So you're sort of a natural, I think, at building up a network for yourself. I mean, because that's what that is. You've built up community. You, yeah. you build up community through your retreats. You build up community through your own daily, you know, treat of having a class that you go to and through your friends. So that sounds like that's been natural for you. Was there a point in your teaching early on where you felt something sh- shift where you were like, oh yeah, I got this. I got the balance of the finances and the different kinds of classes, et cetera. And just coming into your own as a teacher. I do think it was very gradual. I think I remember early on being so, after every class being super critical of myself, you know, leaving, um, being like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Or why did I do that sequence? Or I didn't really this or that, you know, and worrying about money. And when am I going to, when's the next class going to come? And I was subbing a lot. And the first few years were, was definitely, I think it was about two years before some of that anxiety started subsiding. And I was working with it from the beginning. I mean, I would notice it. I remember thinking, when is this anxiety going to go away? And, or is it? And it did. I would say it's the, the kind of two years was when it really started subsiding. And then I would say five years was when I stopped worrying about money. Hmm. And I was like, okay, this is a nice balance of things. And I mean, I would say at this point, you know, 17 years later, it's still an ongoing process. I mean, there's still moments. I mean, my husband will probably tell you differently that um, every retreat, I'm like, I don't know if it's going to fill, you know. So it is Jason still. Jason does. Yes, he does. Full disclosure. You just never know. You just never know. Like Like you said earlier, there are things that are beyond your control. There are things that are beyond your control. People's, you know, schedules this year, people's finances. I mean, it's just, it's expensive to go on a yoga retreat, you know? You don't know. You don't know. And you don't always know what to charge and you don't know exactly. You don't want to, you know, there's all of those things. And I definitely think there's still some of that for me for sure. And there's some tweaking continually too, like what's working too much, what's working that changes for me. I cannot do what I used to do in my twenties anymore. I don't have the energy or desire. I would rather make less, but then you, you make more as, as you go on in your career and you can work less and do more quality. So figuring out what I enjoy more, do I enjoy more privates? Do I enjoy more corporate yoga? Do I enjoy more working with, you know, what populations and all that stuff is something that sort of developed over time and, and does change, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, what I get interested in to, you know, I want to keep yoga alive for me. So there's, I sometimes have a different in- interest that up and I want to put more time into um, one thing versus another. So it's still ongoing, but that that high level that I had of of worry at the beginning isn't happened. And in fact, what does happen is the other. Now what happens, which is so fun, I mean it's one of the things I think of teaching being a practice in and of itself a lot as well as the physical practice or the meditative practices that we do, is I'll come home and share some new moment I had where in the moment I saw what someone needed or what I perceived the meeting and was able to address it in a way I feel proud of myself about. I feel skillful. And I'll share that, you know, with my husband, I'm like, oh my God, I did this thing that I wouldn't have done in the past. I would have been too afraid or, or set a boundary in the past that I wouldn't have been able to. So there's still these fun moments of watching my own teaching develop from my work in psychology, from my own yoga practice from just getting older, right? And from my mentors, you know, in my life and from living that you start to put that all into your teaching and you know how to communicate better to your students. And that's fun. Mm -hmm. That becomes really fun to watch the fruit of your labor over the years start to come out and that, oh my gosh, I did actually help that person. Like I actually know I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, I feel very lucky to be in a profession where you can have that immediate feedback, so to speak, in moments. And like you said earlier, that has nothing to do with having 50 to 100 people in your class. 
And in fact, I think that level of intimacy potentially can get in the way of that. Can. I think it's a different beast. When I'm teaching at Yoga Journal and there's 50 people, I love it. Yeah. It's super it's fun. fun. <laughs> super fun. And I'm, I'm teaching a workshop and I've got it very planned and exactly what I want to express. And there can be some intimacy there. There, you just came to that one class, you know, that I taught at Yoga Journal, and it was, I still knew a lot of people and was able to like give a wave. But when I'm teaching 15 people or 10 people or five people, something different can happen in that room. And it's more personal. There is more intimacy. You can support that individual in a different way that is just not possible in a room of 50. Right, right. One of the things that you said when we talked before was that you are kind of at the point now where you're kind of grateful that you're not a quote unquote famous teacher or you're not like Instagram famous or something like that. So is is that one of the reasons that you feel like you have a really intimate relation, not intimate relationship sounds a little weird, but, <laughs> but you have a, you know, that you're close to your students, you know, your students well, what are the benefits for you personally? I mean, I think some of them are a little bit what we talked about earlier, that I think there's certain challenges that come along with being known, you know, when you're in the spotlight, keeping your eye on the the prize and not getting caught up in people. Cause you'll get, when you're famous, you both get criticized and praised. That's right? true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of manage that right in a different, on a different level. I think, so I, yay, I get to not have that. I'm sure that happens behind my back. Still people are probably both praising and criticizing me behind my back, but thank God most of that's behind my back. I don't want to know about it. Right. I think for me, the benefits yeah, it's just simpler are exactly that. What you said is that, that there's an opportunity to feel more connected to my students, that it's not something where I'm just teaching and it's a one-way conversation. I'm watching students grow because there's a long-term relationship and there's a dialogue. I know what someone is coming for. I know, you know, not everything, of course. You can't possibly know everything, but I know more who a person is, their personality. And then I teach people differently depending on, it's like different friends. You're not exactly, there's your friend that you're crack jokes with all the time and your friend you're more serious with and your friend you talk psychology with and your friend that, you know, my students are that way too, that I'm different with different students. One thing that I notice in terms of gaining, you know, quote unquote popularity, and this started, you know, at Yoga Journal and working for like a very big brand is this concept that we, we used to say in publishing of feeding the beast, right? Like once you start publishing. So when I started at Yoga Journal, we were publishing six, six issues a year. So one every other month. It was so glorious and wonderful. And we had two months to produce every issue and we could like think about things and talk about things and have coffee and be editors, right? And then it became eight issues a year. And then it became nine issues a year. And then it became 12 issues a year. And then it became 12 issues plus three special issues. So for those of you out there who like to hate on their your favorite magazines, like have empathy for the people working there because what you go through in a capitalist society is feeding the beast, right? Is like having to produce more to keep your audience engaged having to produce more to keep people interested, having to keep producing, keep producing, keep producing. Right, and then the quality suffers. If you're not careful, and Jason and I actually try to be very, very careful about this. If you're not careful, it takes over your life. It takes over your life. Yeah, yeah. And then you're not you're not actually living, you're just doing your job. Yeah. And this happens to everyone in every profession. So like I empathize with everyone. I'm not saying this is just something in the yoga world or just something on Instagram, but it definitely is, you know, just to get back to that question, kind of a kind of a cost, right? A cost of gaining that quote unquote fame or popularity or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I think it does come back to what's enough. 
what's enough? And, and everybody has to answer that question for themselves based on what they can handle and what, how, what balance they want in their life. There's nothing wrong with feeling good because you be start having quote unquote success. Sure. So it, again, it's this tricky question, but I think it's common in many, many careers. This is not only yoga in what, what is enough. And the other thing that I, I did want to mention that I think is a flip side of this, that which of course makes it even more complicated. I also have to be careful of my, for myself of when am I letting fear rule and moving away from also a certain kind of success, if you will. Like, for example, I avoided all when Yoga Glow was first coming out and these sorts of things. I didn't want to get involved in those things. And I told myself that it was because, you know, I, I like the in-person. I'm not interested in that. I don't like being on. There's something about teaching in the moment that feels better to me. And I think all that was partially true for sure. And some of it was fear. I don't want to be captured in a way that then someone can be critical, you know, when really there's a balance. Again, I want the primary crux of my career to be in person. I do, for me, it's more rewarding. But like right now I'm doing this thing with Move With, which are audio recordings. And you can, I do a, you know, two classes a week, they're shorter classes, and lots of people can hear them. There's a lot of students I don't teach anymore that have moved away or whatever, and that I get emails from that are like, oh my God, it's so great to have you in my ear, Deb, or it's going to be good for my business. And they're not perfect. I do them in one shot. I say right foot when I mean left and have to correct myself. And I have to let go a little. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Other people have a right to feel critical of me and that I may not be what they want. And that's okay. And I don't have to go and listen to them a million times and listen to them myself. But it might benefit someone else. And things like this, like this podcast, I get to connect with you. We get to have a conversation that hopefully will be helpful to some new teachers. Yeah. Or, you know, other teachers that are just want to hear what's in the mind of uh, their colleagues. You know, I think that it, these things are not good or bad enough in themselves. It's the inquiry of how we're using these things. Like, how are we using technology? How are we, what is our underlying motivation for these things? Is it, I feel insecure and I need to be famous to feel self-worth? Or is it just, no, I want to grow my business and that's a realistic thing and will be helpful to do some marketing? Right. I think that's great that you brought up that example. I mean, it's kind of like, I think what you're saying is you you noticed in yourself that, yes, you are making a conscious choice to not, you know, get into, quote unquote, the rat race. But perhaps you are also holding yourself back a little bit from opportunity. And you have to balance how much of it is like purely just a, a logical, rational, good decision for you versus how much of it is perhaps fear of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone from time to time. Yeah. I feel like we talked about this in our last conversation a little bit, that you had to get to a point where you would recognize, no, I actually do want to do that thing. And I'm going to try to do that thing. I mean, you did end up teaching at Yoga Journal. And that was great for you in many ways, I'm sure, in terms of just growing your teaching, putting you in a new situation, pushing you out of your comfort zone. I mean, you went and you were the corporate teacher at Twitter for a long time, right? Which is a great gig to have, I'm sure. Yeah, and like let's talk about a group of people who probably need their attention span uh, <laughs> lengthened a little bit. <laughs> so you were at, you were at Twitter for t- for seven years. How have you figured out a good balance of how to make a living with the different parts and pieces? It's always changing. I just finally finished teaching at Twitter January thirty first. So and I was there pretty much full time for seven years. I mean, it built slowly. So I guess it's really only the last maybe three, four years, I was full, full time there. So I'm sort of remaking things now, just now. And for me right now, I do feel like I've already created a pretty good balance. I love teaching group classes. So I have a certain number of those that feels like the right amount. I have some private clients that I really enjoy working with that are specific to the kinds of 
want, we, we're aligned together with what my goals would be and what they're looking for. I like teaching, I teach the yoga sutras privately now to some students, which is super fun, sometimes over Skype and sometimes in person. And that's great fun. I do a meditation class right now. I was teaching meditation also at Twitter. I just do one of those at another, at a corporate a place called Collective Health. And then I do workshops and some retreats. So that's sort of the combination of things. So I do do a lot of different things, whereas for a while I was just doing one thing. Just, mm-hmm. I mean, I, wasn't, I was doing multiple things at Twitter, but I was just at Twitter for a long time. And now I'm, you know, figuring these all out together. And I have a certain amount of time that I do want to not work. And that took me many, many, many years, many years to, to work out for myself. I think I had some workaholism, if you will, for multiple reasons. And I don't have that. I am able to, I shouldn't say I don't have that at all, but I have that less. Mm-hmm. It's not as um, strong a pull. There's a really strong pull to want to spend some time with my husband and my dog and myself. And I feel my life is, you know, that, that different than my job. I'm lucky enough that like my job is something I believe so much in. And I, you know, I live by, I try to live by a lot of the stuff I teach. So there's not this huge separation from work and life in that way, but there is definitely a, an off time where I am not teaching, where I am relaxing on the couch and reading a book or going on a walk or not knowing what I want to do with my time. And you know, I, you know, I feel like doing and not just always planning the next thing and planning mm-hmm. like that to me, not only took time in terms of financial stability, but took time just in terms of my needing to work it out. I think it's one of the tricky things about working for yourself, figuring out how much, again, how much is enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of it is just staying steady and moving forward and just learning as you go. Don't you think? I think it's all (laughs) in the doing. I think so much is in the doing. I think it's one of the reasons that I love the way I started teaching yoga. You know, I, I don't necessarily recommend it for everyone now. I don't think it's even possible now. Right. But I kind of love that I just got thrown in. I will never forget that day when there was a line out the door of people wanting to take this class. And they were just like, the teacher came in and was like, I can't teach. Can you teach for me? Deb can teach. She takes that class. And I was like, I can't, I don't know. And literally just was, they were like, come on, Deb, just lead us through the, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. And I was like, uh, and my shift was just ending. So I, that was the class I normally took. So I led them. And there was something so great about, I mean, I remember I didn't know the words of the poses. I bunda, forget it. I didn't know bunda. I didn't. And you sort of started. So then I started going to classes and paying attention. How are people adjusting? How, you know, Devorah Sachs was one of my first teachers. I was like watching her. I was kind of doing my practice, but watching her and listening to how she, how she talked And then I met with her and had all these conversations with her. And you kind of figure things out as you go. At least that's how it happened for me. And then I decided, well, I need to study anatomy if I'm going to do this. And I better learn the Sanskrit stuff. Mm -hmm. And I better find out what the origins of this, you know, and then you, and then you start to figure out your strengths and your weaknesses and what needs work and what you can let go of. And it's kind of like life. I don't know if you can have it all planned. Find it as you go. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm so glad to talk to you because I feel like one of the messages you get if you like scroll through your Instagram and are following yoga people or self-help people or or even these sort of business self-help people that are really big these days is like, follow your bliss, live your passion. Here's how to do it in five easy steps. You have to build your newsletter list up to 10,000 people, blah, 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 blah. And I look at you and I see that like this is and has been from the very beginning your passion. This is your form of self-expression. This is an art form for you. And you're living it. And you're making it work. And you're making a living. And that's what I want people to know, is that it is possible. Still, even in our just generally very commercialized world. Absolutely. I feel, I mean, I feel ridiculously lucky. And, you know, I remember last time we had a conversation, you had asked me a question about, you know, what my thoughts are were, for sort of what younger students advice, if you will, mm-hmm. that I could give other people to, as they're just getting started of how, how they could sort of do this. And I think, I definitely think each person is going to have their own path, 
but if you don't mind, I would love to share. I thought, but I mean, one of the things I think that was helpful for me was I said yes to everything at the beginning, literally. And Joshua was actually the one who told me to do that. If someone wanted me to sub, it didn't matter if it was like halfway across town or in Oakland or in, you know, wherever I said, yeah, and it could be at seven in the morning, that same day, seven at night. I said, yes. And I think that at the beginning, that saying yes is really important because it, I know now on the other side from getting subs, if someone is a yes person and they're good enough, I'm going to call the yes person. And the, the other thing is if they're responsible. So you want to be on time or early. So it's not only about your teaching ability, but are you someone that is responsible and mature, right? So even if there's only one student, teach. Mm. It does not matter. At the beginning, it can't, if you really do want to be a yoga teacher, that this is what you're, and, and maybe you don't know, maybe you have to, I didn't know right away. It took me a long time to figure out. But if you think there's something that keeps bringing you back, even teaching that one student, when you get the five bucks, you're still training and you're forming a relationship. I have students that I taught at this little ashram in the mission where we moved a couch and there was a rug. We had to roll back and all that stuff. And there would sometimes be one student that would show up and they come to my retreats now. I still have relationships with them. Yeah. So I think that would be another thing that I would definitely encourage. That's a great example, right? Someone who one person or two people who in the beginning, it might've seemed like, oh my gosh, because it's hard. There's not as much energy in the room when, you know, when it's small and it's a lot to carry but that that investment in those people, now they're your people long-term. They're your people. And it taught me how to teach privates and how to work that intimately with somebody. And I think the other thing that I did, I don't know that this is for everyone. And this is a, a boundary thing. And people have to sort that out for themselves. Different teachers are very different with this. But I stayed after and answered questions for a certain amount of time so that I made myself available after class. And I think that also is a really good way to start to build relationships and to say, I don't know when you don't know. Sure. That's probably the most important thing I've learned along my yoga career. And I think that the other big thing that I, that I learned was for a while I would, I was waiting for someone to come to me to ask me to teach at Yoga Journal or I was waiting for someone to come to me to ask me to make a video. You know, when's guy I'm going to knock on my door? You know, and what I realized was that's not how I don't think anything in life really works. You have to create your own opportunities. You have to create your own things. You have to. I remember I finally decided to make my own yoga video and I had all kinds of ambivalent feelings about it. But I was just like, I'm just going to do it. My brother's a a filmmaker. I'm going to just do it. We had actually a lot of fun doing it. There was a lot of laughter because he tried to do the yoga. and. We had, we had a great time doing it. And then Lauren at Yoga Journal happened to somehow, I don't even, I think I had it in my bag. She's like, oh, do you want us to write a review for this in Yoga Journal? And you hadn't even thought that you could just have approached her with that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but, but even if I didn't have it, there'd be no review. You have to first make it. Right. And, you know, you, I, I started teaching at Yoga Journal because John Abbott used to come to my classes and I went up to him. I said, so when am I going to start teaching a yoga journal? Yoga journal? But it took me like three years to get up the courage to do that. Right. <laughs> but I finally was like, he's not going to come ask me. He doesn't know. He can't read your mind. He doesn't know you want to. Right. So right. then I was like, you know, so when's this going to happen? And he was like, give me a call and we'll, fi- we'll figure it out. Yeah. It sounds like you, you had moments of really like crystal clear moments of knowing like, yeah, that is something I want to try to do. That is something I want to go for. And so you're saying when you have those moments, you actually have to hustle a little bit to make it happen. Yeah. If you, if you know, you want to do a yoga retreat, do a yoga retreat. I mean, maybe start with a day long, Mm -hmm. you know, and email your students and see who's going to come. So you don't throw and do it at someone's home where you can don't have to spend a lot of overhead. You can do these things in safe ways, but don't wait for someone to ask you, like figure out what you want to offer, what you want to give and do that, offer it. And then even if you break even only, it's a start. Right. I know it's true. I mean, I've been just raising a kid. There's just all these 
as she's about to start elementary school, there's all these books and talks and all these things about the gift of failure too, you know, that you have to teach your kids. It's okay. It's okay to not get everything right all the time. It's okay. And it's been reminding me lately, like if I want to teach her that I have to actually embody that I have to try to do something and just say, it's not always going to be perfect. Yeah. I feel that way, even about these interviews, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm a little bit out of my depth, but I got to do it. I can't just stay stagnant forever. It has to be a little messy. And the, the more that we can forgive ourselves for our learning curve, the more than we can also be compassionate for each other mm. also. You know, it's like letting really go of some fantasy of perfection. Like you don't ever arrive. There's not an arrival. I don't think there's a land of perfection. It would be no fun. <laughs> no. It would be no fun at all. And you're right. We would be like, we would not be nice to each other if that's if it was like, well, I've figured it all out. I don't know about you, but uh, my triangle pose is perfect every time. Have you seen my handstand? Boom. It's just like ridiculous. Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I am just nailing life every day. I don't know about you. Yeah, for sure. Oh, my gosh. Oh, Deb, so good to talk to you. So good to talk to you too, Andrea. I'm so happy to see your happy face and your happy life. It's great. Thank you. Thank you for doing this and yeah, getting the podcast out there. Yeah, absolutely. Great people that I get to listen to as well. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Show notes for this episode can be found at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 41. And as always, if there was anything in today's episode that you found helpful or that spoke to you, please feel free to share it with your friends or share it on social media or to leave a review on iTunes. That really does help more people find the podcast. Until next week, you guys enjoy your practice.